Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Internet Law Specialist Michael Geist has details on why the United States Senate is now upset over Canada's proposed new online laws. Fiscal studies expert Jake Fuss looks at Christian Freeland's definition of fiscal prudence. Family doctor Tamina Ali says the new doctor pay deal in British Columbia will allow her to continue practicing. And Royal Roads University President Philip Steenkamp warns food security should be next on BC's political menu. So let's get started. Our next guest, Dr. Michael Geist, Professor of Law and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, here to talk about the big story in the Globe and Mail the other day, U.S. escalates trade concerns over Canada's online news and streaming bills. We're talking C-11. Michael Geist, good morning and welcome back. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Michael. Just remind our listeners, if you would, please, because on that same page in the Globe, where you're uh, quoted in the article about U.S. concerns, there's also Margaret Atwood on Bill C-11 and why bureaucrats shouldn't tell authors what to write. There's the film industry calling on the minister to reject key Senate amendments as Bill C-11 clears the red chamber. This is all over again, Michael. And what's the story on the American concerns because now it's in the united states senate it is this bill is is really all over the place this week and and part of it stems from the fact that the senate did pass an amended version of the bill and they actually did fix some of the some of the bigger concerns that are out there but the heritage minister pablo rodriguez indicated to an industry conference that he didn't seem to think he was going to be willing to accept any amendments that matter. Right. It's rather remarkable. He was suggesting, listen, uh, this was the most extensive study the Senate has ever conducted on a bill, but I'm going to reject everything they do if it makes any changes, which um, I think is, is exceptionally frustrating for a lot of stakeholders. And it is also, I think, going to be very frustrating to the United States, which, as you indicate, has become increasingly concerned with Canada's digital policies, in particular bills like Bill C-11 and Bill C-18. So what specifically, uh, what language, give us the legal language, Michael, that's got the Americans all twisted up? Because the president's coming to town, he's coming to Ottawa next month, first state visit to Canada, and this is definitely going to be on the agenda. What are they bent out of shape about? Well, their concern, as as would be the case anytime they're going to cite the trade agreements that Canada has with the United States, is whether or not there is discriminatory treatment for U.S. companies. And Canada would say the same thing, of course, if Canadian companies are treated in a discriminatory fashion by U.S. laws. And in this case, they would point to something like C-11 and say, listen, you're creating a a framework where U.S. companies, some of the large streaming services, for example, will be required to contribute um, to funding pools, but won't be able to access those same funding pools in the way that their Canadian competitors are able to. And is that the primary concern? And I would assume, of course, these groups have been lobbying senators and uh, Congress people uh, in order to elevate the uh, the uh, discussion period. And it, so far, it seems to be working. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that, of course, uh, it's those companies that are affected that are driving some of the discussion coming out of the United States. This has been percolating for, for some time 
you know, if you take a look at it, uh, there have been a number of meetings between the head of trade in the United States, known as the U.S. Trade Representative, the USTR, and their Canadian counterpart. They've been steadily increasing the the concern list, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It started with some digital tax plans that Canada has, then extended to Bill C-11, and then just a month or two ago extended into Bill C-18, the online news bill. And now, as you point out, it is extending into the Senate, where senators from both parties, Republican and Democrat, have now are, are now raising alarm bells about the Canadian And you've already mentioned the Canadian Senate. And just yesterday, New Brunswick Senator David Adams Richards, uh, supposedly independent, but appointed by Trudeau in 2017 for all intents and purposes, a liberal saying, quote, this law will be one of scapegoating all those who do not fit into what our bureaucrats think Canada should be, close quote. That's a good swat across the chops, isn't it? It is a remarkable speech that, that I encourage your listeners to take the time to find online, even if it's just some of the, the shortened version. And when you see uh, people like Senator Richards, people like Margaret Atwood, some of Canada's most acclaimed authors, taking a look at this legislation, and they're sounding the alarm bells. Uh, in large measure, because of the issue that, that has preoccupied so many when it comes to C-11, the fact that the government is moving into uncharted territory by regulating user content on platforms like TikTok and YouTube. And, you know, you've got the heritage minister. I mean, uh, it's hard to know how to describe it other than just misleading or gaslighting on this issue because, you know, into the former CRTC chair, independent senators, thousands of creators, now some of Canada's best-known authors, all looking at this legislation, all concluding that as, struck, as structured based when it came out of the House of Commons, that's what it was doing, despite what the minister has to say. The Senate's gone ahead and tried to fix it, and now the concern is that Pablo Rodriguez, the heritage minister, is simply going to reject the fix. So you and I have been talking about on the radio for quite some time, Michael Geist, and you and I can recall, probably you can recall conversations we had when the government of Canada, when asked, would you like to step in there and supervise the Internet, said, absolutely not, not a chance, don't even want to deal with it. So what's caused this incredible change of heart? You're right. We've seen a dramatic shift in approach just over the last few years. Yes. A much more aggressive approach. I mean, part of it is that I think we do recognize that, you know, Canada and many countries may may have taken too much of a hands-off approach, that there are harms that take place online, mm-hmm. and that we need to ensure that we've got an appropriate regulatory framework and real accountability uh, from some of the companies to ensure that they behave in an appropriate fashion. But what they've done in this instance with Bill C-11 is touch on thousands of individual creators. And so when Pablo Rodriguez says platforms are in, users are out, it's just plainly wrong. It is clear that their content, the content of users, can be captured by this legislation, at least as the House uh, developed it. And what's amazing and and perhaps most frustrating now is that after all these Senate hearings, they came up with a fix that would largely exclude much of that content, address the issues that Rodriguez has said he wants addressed, and yet his comments to this industry conference just a day or two ago seemed to suggest he was even going to reject that compromise. Yeah, strange stuff. Final question to you, Michael. Great to have you back. And it's an, it's an aside question, but you mentioned it, so I'm going to ask you about TikTok. A lot of concerns south of the border, particularly about the insidious nature of TikTok and its ownership's relations with uh, Beijing. Are you uh, concerned about the TikTok representing any kind of national security threat? 
I'm not sure that it represents a security threat, but I think the, the concerns that we've seen raised, uh, you know, certainly merit a closer look. I think, though, it highlights that one of the fundamental problems we have is the government's been prioritizing the wrong thing. Mm. It needs to be prioritizing things like privacy. And legislation on privacy seemingly goes nowhere with this government. So rather than taking steps to ensure that our data, our personal information is better protected, it's out there with legislation like this that, is, as you've been suggesting, has drawn the ire of even some of Canada's best-known uh, creators. Indeed. Michael Geist, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for this. We'll talk again, for sure. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Here's a quote from an article from our next guest. When discussing the upcoming federal budget, Finance Minister Christian Freeland recently said the Trudeau government will continue to take a fiscally prudent approach given the uncertainty in the world economy. But Canadians should be cautious about the minister's definition of fiscal prudence given the government's history on spending and deficits. The article is entitled Freeland's Fiscally Prudent Approach Drenched in Red Ink. The author, Jake Fuss, who joins us now from Calgary, Mr. Fuss, is the Associate Director of Fiscal Studies with the Fraser Institute. Jake, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Now, budget uh, typically delivered in April in Canada. Are you expecting uh, that to happen again this year or earlier? Yeah, great question. I mean, typically the government uh, releases their budget either in March or in April. Uh, Some years it can be as early as late February. Um, But the general expectation is probably uh, mid to late March this year for the federal budget. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the reality that you point out. You go on to talk about a fiscally prudent approach to government finances must include spending restraint. And then, of course, you're also dealing, you wrote about this a week or so ago, with, with the, uh, the interest rates. The fact that we have a $2 trillion plus national debt, the interest rates alone for the year are going to be somewhere close to $70 billion. That's a lot of money that could be programmed spending elsewhere. This is the kind of reality that's going to challenge fiscal prudence of even the the most experienced finance minister. Well, that's right. Uh, what we've seen, you know, at the federal level is eight consecutive deficits over the last eight years. Um, and what that means is that you're accumulating debts, uh, both during times of recession and before the recession as well. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of that debt is interest costs. Um, we've seen the federal interest costs in particular double over the last just two years when you have rising interest rates and that accumulation of debt. Um, and the consequences, like you laid out, are basically that we don't have this money to spend on other programs or provide tax relief to Canadians. Um, in every province across Canada right now, Canadians are paying more than $1,300 per person just on, on interest costs mm-hmm. um, going to government. So this is a substantial expense for Canadians. Jake, when Daddy Trudeau ran the show back in the 70s and 80s, he effectively doubled the national debt. Has Junior done the same again? So what we're seeing right now is this run up in debt, um, you know, uh, pretty similar. Um, you know, what we saw over the last eight years or so, um, we've seen about a $600 billion increase in debt, um, about or about a 48% increase in total debt in less than a decade. 
um, under the Trudeau government since 2015. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that the period in the 80s as well, because um, ultimately what happened is in the 1990s, when interest rates were rising, um, we reached a near debt crisis in, in the country. Right. And ultimately, the, the Chrétien and, and Martin government in the mid-1990s had to make significant changes um, in order to bring those interest costs back down um, and return the, the balanced budgets um, and, and get to ultimately surpluses so that they could get into a healthier um, government finance situation. Um, so, as, you know, we could get into a similar situation here if we're not careful and, and if we're not prudent with our own finances today. Well, the government is handicapped to a certain extent, self-imposed, mind you, Jake, but nonetheless, they are handcuffed by the fact that they have this alliance with the NDP based exclusively, it seems, on the NDP prodding them to spend even more on programs they, uh, as they imagine them. And to try and maintain power, they have to keep the NDP on side, which means more expenses, don't you think? One of the, the big challenges moving forward is to actually show spending restraint for the Trudeau government. Um, you know, their their latest projections have a deficit for 2023 over $30 billion, and that was in an optimistic scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't include any potential funding for a, a national pharmacare plan, for instance. Um, it doesn't include money for any potential recession either. Um, so this just, you know, demonstrates just how important it actually will be for the government to demonstrate that spending restraint moving forward, um, because, you know, we can get into a very sticky situation quite quickly um, if spending starts to get out of control and we're accumulating a lot more debt than necessary. So uh, now with the uh, at least in theory and if the, uh, the the rule of law was to be followed, we would not have a federal election until approximately a year from now, which gives them at least two more budgets to deal with before uh, before the vote although there is some sentiment that Mr. Trudeau would like to go early while Mr. Polyev remains relatively unknown and take his chances. Either way, uh, do you think the, the debt servicing fact of life that we now face with the mega, mega billion dollar interest payments alone constricting our ability to spend without borrowing uh, is going to be an election issue? It, it could potentially, you know, um, I mean, I think this issue is going to be, you know, top of mind for, for many Canadians as interest costs um, are, are rising, especially now that we have this hot, higher interest cost or higher interest rate environment that we're in now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are seeing this, you know, as an issue at both the provincial and federal levels now. Um, you know, like I said, the interest costs are now consuming, you know, more than $1,300 per person um, across the country in every province. Um, so this is a significant expense. Um, and ultimately, it is the consequence of debt. Um, so it can become a, a bigger issue for governments and for Canadians over time. Um, and the other consequence of debt ultimately is that um, future generations of Canadians have to repay that debt potentially through higher taxes, too. Um, so that's another you know pocketbook issue for Canadians as well. No question. And the spillover effect, too, Jake, is at the provincial level. I mean, with the permission to spend uh, as much as you can dream about at the federal level, Ontario uh, and other provinces, uh, more than a bit of a financial mess themselves because of that attitude. And it's similar to what we we saw in the 1980s and 1990s, ultimately. Um, you know, the provinces were in that near-debt crisis, just like the federal government was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were very united on fiscal policy. Um, you know, we have seen, you know, recently some surpluses across Canada for provinces. Um, but the debt that they were accumulating over the last 15 years, particularly since the 2008 recession, ultimately means that interest costs are much higher now. Um, plus, you have the higher interest rate environment as well. 
Um, so those are driving up expenses for provincial governments, um, particularly in Newfoundland and Labrador and, and in Ontario and Quebec, um, who have significantly higher interest costs per person than other provinces in mm-hmm. Canada. Jake, uh, uh, thanks for this. Uh, friends, the article is entitled Freeland's Fiscally Prudent Approach, Drenched in Red Ink. It's in the Sun newspaper groups. Have a, have a look. It's a good read. Only take a couple of minutes. Jake Fuss is the Associate Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute on the line from Calgary today. Jake, thanks for this. Good to have you back. Thanks very much for having me on. Last year, Dr. Tamina Ali, who was awarded Family Physician of the Year by the B.C. College of Family Physicians back in 2020, went on record as expressing concern she may have to leave her practice if the health care system did not improve. Well, we've had an improvement. The Minister of Health, Adrian Dix, just this week uh, announcing a new doctor payment model has come into effect. It was actually unveiled last October. It's the Longitudinal Family Physician Payment model. And here to talk more about it is the doc who said she might have to leave. She's still here. Dr. Tamina Ali is on the line. Good morning, doc, and welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you along with us, Tamina. Tell us why you were on the cusp at one point, not too long ago, of uh, hitting the bricks and, and walking away. Well, I think I was reaching a a breaking point like many of my colleagues between the stress of COVID that has affected absolutely all of us Mm -hmm. and the extra strain that put on me and my practice and then actually getting COVID and uh, trying to balance uh, working sick remotely and taking care of my patients and looking at the finances and my books and seeing that uh, continuing to provide the care in the manner I wanted to to my patients giving them time and being thorough and following up things as things needed to be was no longer economically viable. And so if things weren't going to change, I would have to make the really, really hard-wrought decision of leaving a long-tunnel family practice. So now, uh, as I read the numbers, and I should never do live math on the radio, but uh, as I read the numbers, it will provide an annual increase of well over $100,000 based on the new targets and the new reality, at least acknowledging the number of patients doctors can see and the amount of time each patient gets, those sorts of things. Is that, uh, is that a reasonable assessment? That's the hope, and that's the um, reasonable kind of estimate we make. None of us are going to know until we uh, see some numbers after the fact. But ultimately, a lot of the work that I do, and all of us who started billing the model this week, you know, started to recognize it, has been um, extremely essential non-clinical work. So yesterday, even though I was catching up on administrative work and not seeing patients in the clinic, I still had a couple of hours of work to catch up on over the week. That before was unpaid. Um, And also keeping in mind that the work that I do administrative-wise, whether it's ordering some tests or follow-ups, all generate work for my staff to follow up on. So before it was work that was unpaid and then led to staff work that I had to pay my staff to follow up on. Um, so it wasn't a, a, um, 
a process that could continue to be um, paid for off of my uh, fee-for-service um, billings. And so this new process, not only is it going to pay for my time, it's also much simpler. There's 11 fee codes compared to hundreds in ah. the fee-for-service guide. So for a new doctor coming to practice, not only are they trying to navigate how do I take care of my patients? How do I get used to this um, process of being a real doctor and establishing my practice? How do I bill for it? Sure. How do I pay my staff? This is a much, much, much simpler model for doctors to start into. There's also an element of bureaucracy involved with being a family physician, as you are required to keep records of all of those uh, meetings and, and uh, 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 patient visits and the, uh, the, the subject matter discussed and all the rest of it. And I can recall my family doctor, when there was a, a change several years ago, he would, about halfway through the 15 minutes we had eligible, uh, he would turn to his computer and he would continue talking to me, but he would be looking at his screen and he'd be entering data as we were talking. And I mean, I got a little honked off about that because I like eye contact and I only get 15 minutes with the guy in the first place. And now he's being a clerk instead of being my doctor. And it, it was, he did it because it kind of helped him move things along more quickly but that does that drive you nuts well i think it's a balance i mean i i book 15 minute appointments but really the goal is to spend um that might not be all 15 minutes depending on the patient because after that appointment there can be multiple minutes depending on extra work to do afterwards so either you build that into your day or you do it at the end of the day and so for many physicians that means you end seeing patients at five o'clock you put your kids to bed and make dinner um probably the reverse order mm -hmm. and then um in the evening you're on your computer catching up on all the paperwork, um, to say that we need to create a, a, a plan and a service that makes patients comfortable. And ultimately, if it's, you know, too much staring in the computer screen, that's something we can work on. But ultimately, family medicine and medicine in general involves data. And that's looking at your previous results, mm -hmm. um, stuff that we need to order. And the bureaucracy, as you mentioned, has increased substantially. Um, from when I started 20 years ago, the level of forms to do one simple procedure, for example, trying to organize a blood transfusion for my patient took like 11 pages of paperwork to complete and I still missed one. Mm. So then I get another fact saying you missed this page and you have to complete it. Not only does it take time, it delays patient care. And so we're hoping not only will this fee model change things up for family doctors, it will also incentivize the government to try to decrease that burden of administrative forms um, that they ask physicians to complete on an increasing basis. Doctor, is it true that a doctor is only allowed to see a patient for one medical issue at a time? If I've got a, 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 a pain in my leg and a diabetes meeting, uh, it, it's got to be one or the other. You can't do both. Well, it's a balance about agenda setting and time. So there is no rule that states that. But what it comes down to is having that conversation at the beginning of the meeting and saying, hey, what are all the things you're hoping to um, get through today? Let's figure out what we have time for. It's not necessarily that we're trying to skimp on how many things we cover. It's a recognition that we have uh, appointment times and we want to try to run on schedule. So right. just like when I go to see my hairdresser, 
if I have time booked for a haircut and at the last minute I decide, can you also do my color and some highlights, she's not going to have booked right. enough time to do all that. So if there's a balance of trying to cover as much as we can in the time allotted, um, but certainly there is no rule. But I think physicians over time have had to adapt based on the fee-for-service model on how can they cover, see as many patients, provide access so patients can make appointments in a timely manner and also be able to cover their overhead. Dr. Ali, we're delighted that you are pleased with the uh, outcome of all of these negotiations and that there is a new doctor pay agreement on the table and that you're going to stick around. We desperately need you and we're very grateful for your joining us this morning as well. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited that I'll be able to continue doing the work I love for decades to come. And more importantly, that I'll have more colleagues joining me doing this work so that when I am finally ready to retire decades from now, there'll be ready family doctors um, happily taking over my care so that my patients will always receive seamless, comprehensive primary care. Thanks. Every British Columbian deserves. Thanks very much, Tamina. We appreciate it. We'll talk again. Okay. Bye-bye now. For years, it's been easy for many of us in B.C. to think of food security as, well, somebody else's problem, or just to not think about it at all. If there was ever any doubt before, it's gone now. Food security is a critical issue. The assured, ready supply of a wide variety of food that we become accustomed to is in jeopardy. This is all part of an article recently written by our next guest entitled Food Security Should Be Next on BC's Political Menu. The author of the piece is the president of Royal Roads University. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Dr. Philip Steenkamp. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Sterling, and thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure, Philip, and I'm, I appreciated the article very much. And uh, we're a pretty complacent bunch, and prior to a few recent shocks to our food supply, were they, it, had they not happened, it's likely we would have been that continuing complacent bunch this morning, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for the longest time, I think 60, 70 years, food's been very cheap in North America you know, if, if you look at around 1900, I think households in North America were probably paying, uh, were using about 42% of their income to pay for food. And then that dropped to about 10% in the 50s. And until recently, it's been at that level, not for all households, of course, but on an average. Indeed. Well, we got a taste of food insecurity on a grand scale early in the pandemic. Now, it wasn't food in those early days for some mysterious reason, Philip, that the, the crisis was on toilet paper and hand sanitizer. But it quickly evolved into things like flour and, and other household staples. Suddenly, the shelves were empty. That's food insecurity in spades. And that was rare for us. Yeah, very rare for us. And, you know, some of that had to do with disruptions in supply chains because of COVID. Sure. But then, of course, in November 2021, here in B.C., we saw the atmospheric rivers, which devastated, uh, you know, farms through the Fraser Valley. And yes. none of us can forget those images of the drowned chickens and pigs and, uh, you know, even bee, uh, even beehives and apiaries were all overwhelmed and, and thousands and thousands killed. And so that was our local backyard food supply, the one that we take the most for granted, that all of a sudden, essentially, for a short term at least, disappeared. Yeah, absolutely uh, disappeared. And, you know, this is happening on a global scale, of course. You know, it's compounded by climate change, which is disrupting, um, you know, crop productivity around the world. 
Um, it's also disrupted by war. We've seen the incredible impact of Russia's brutal invasion on Ukraine and the way that's disrupted Ukrainian wheat supply, mm-hmm. mostly to African countries. Um, you know, we've seen an increase in hunger over the last few years after making steady progress for many years. But, you know, the estimates now are over 800 million people worldwide are undernourished. And that number is probably rising. Dr. Steenkamp, how do politicians make food security a priority? What legislatively can be done to ensure greater food security? Well, I think it has to happen at all levels, right? So at the international level, it's a big issue with the United Nations and sort of affiliated agencies. And there have been summits on food and food security. It featured for the first time really prominently in the uh, climate uh, uh, conference this last year in Cairo, mm-hmm. uh, the biodiversity conference in, in Montreal. So these are at the international level, people saying food, food security, sustainable food systems must be a priority. And so I think our federal politicians have a duty you know, to raise those issues in those forums. Uh, then, of course, nationally, the federal government has a role I believe, to uh, you know, clearly indicate that food security is a top priority. And we haven't really seen that here in this country. I mean, there's a lot of angst around inflation, particularly inflation around food. And then there's a provincial responsibility to do so as well. And then I actually think community by community, there's a responsibility to highlight the importance of food and food security and at a household level and at an individual level. And we've all got different roles to play. Sure. Um, but, you, you know, you, you asked the question from a policy point of view. So from a policy point of view, uh, you know, I think the, the ways to incent um, the development of sustainable f- uh, food systems through obviously things like resourcing and funding and grants, um, tax treatments, tax incentives, uh, you know, things like that. But also uh, there's a whole national scientific community that that you know, can and should be convened around these issues. Um, and at the local level, uh, local governments, city, you know, city governments, town um, and, and village governments and indigenous governments, indeed, I think, um, need to demonstrate leadership on them. And some are indeed. Let's talk a little bit about what you're up to in your own backyard there at Royal Roads University, Philip. You've got something called the Giving Garden at the farm on campus. Tell us more, please. Yes, so the Giving Garden is the first phase of something we call in the farm at Royal Roads University, and that is uh, bringing food back under cultivation at um, at our campus. You know, our campus was, of course, the, the Hatley Park Estate, the, the famous estate run by the Dunsmere family. Right. And they had something called an Edwardian kitchen garden, which is a five-acre walled garden where they grew food. Hmm. When I started as president a few years ago, I asked the question, why aren't we growing food at scale in this garden sure. anymore? And so we started last year. We started something called the Giving Garden, and we call it the Giving Garden because uh, all the food grown on that garden we give to local partners, um, particularly to low-income families. Uh, we started it in April of 2022, and since then we've produced over a thousand pounds of produce that's gone to local partners. So over the next few years, we're going to expand that Giving Garden. We're going to create an indigenous food and medicine garden, a restored and expanded polyculture orchard as well. And we're going to be holding community workshops and volunteer opportunities just to get everybody 
in our community and in surrounding communities engaged in these critical questions of food and food security. Indeed, and you mentioned uh, climate change being a factor, and certainly those of us, uh, well, in this part of Canada particularly, we depend a great deal on California, which has been absolutely hammered by a series of major consequential climate change-like events, floods and fires and so on, to the extent where the sorts of reliable California stuff that we've been so accustomed to had been not completely wiped out by any means, but greatly reduced and therefore considerably more costly in the process. Yes, yeah, Dylan, that's a critical issue. And I think a really, really stark demonstration of why we need to in- increase food security at home, why we need to grow more food ourselves, because those disruptions we've seen and more are coming mm-hmm. and they're going to keep coming. You know, you've, you mentioned the floods in, in California, but as well, there's a pathogen which is just raging through the, the lettuce crops in central California. And this, we've seen this huge spike in lettuce prices. Mm-hmm. Everybody's talking about this huge spike in, in the price of eggs right now, too. So, you know, we need to do much more. I think, you know, trade will continue to be an important part of food security. But growing at home is going to be critical. And, you know, uh, you know the, the, the kind of experiment we have at Raw Roads is at a fairly small scale. Sure. But it's important. And if everybody got involved and engaged, um, we could produce at scale. There are other incredible, incredible technological innovations in the space right now, like vertical gardens. Um, incredible stuff happening in Singapore and the Netherlands. Um, so you can grow food vertically and you can grow mass, massive amounts of food vertically as well. And I know some local governments are very interested in looking at, at those options, too. Recent shocks to our food supply should give us an appetite for action, is the statement the headline writer made uh, at the beginning of your article in the Vancouver Sun a couple of days ago. What sort of appetite do you sense right now, both at the provincial and federal level, for uh, paying considerably more attention to food security? I think the appetite is there at the individual, the household, the community level, but it needs to kind of come together at the provincial and at, at the national level. Uh, I mean, when I talk to, for instance, the Minister of Agriculture here, uh, the Minister of Agriculture is deeply interested in, in, in these issues, but we need to come together. I chatted to uh, Wendy Grant-John the other day from Musqueam Nation, and she she called me following this article and said, you know, there's a whole bunch of Indigenous communities looking at these issues, but how do we get together? Mm-hmm. So we need, we need somebody to convene this group. So Wendy and I have had a discussion about getting together and convening groups who are working on these issues, because there are, there are dozens, hundreds, hundreds of of uh, communities and organizations are very concerned about these issues and working on these issues. So I'm going to look at ways in which we can convene around these issues and connect to what's happening at the provincial and at the national levels. If any good is to come from the food supply shocks of the past three years and the more severe incidents that are sure to come, it's that they've given us all an appetite for these conversations. It's time for our leaders to get cooking, says our guest, Dr. Philip Steenkamp from Royal Roads University. Terrific article, sir. Thank you for being with us this morning, Philip. A treat to have you. Thank you so much, Sterling, and thank you for your interest in this hugely important subject. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.